Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on yet another overcast day here in the capital. I'm Matthew O'Neill, and today, as always, we ensure that we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First, we're joined by Nilesh Shah, Chief Executive of Blick Rothenberg, a market-leading accounting, tax, and advisory business. Nilesh, hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us on the show today. Uh, now, normally we get straight into the subject of leadership, but considering the ongoing COVID outbreak, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, how is this affecting your operations? Well, uh, obviously, in a trying time uh, for everyone, I think mainly because of uh, the unknown. Mm. Uh, the fact that I have taken the business through recessions before doesn't really mean a lot. It helps. But we are really in uncharted territory here. So in terms of how it impacted the business, I think the initial first few weeks uh, were quite trying and challenging because everyone was concerned about the world and obviously the impact on the business as well. But since then, uh, the business has been strong uh, and we've settled into a rhythm that seems to work for everyone working from home. And in fact, now looking forward to really how business is going to change in terms of the operational model going forward, which in many ways is quite exciting. And how do you think it's going to change? I think the obviously the outlook that people come back with, uh, I've heard many of my colleagues really talk openly about how they feel their priorities have changed. Uh, work is obviously a focus because we all need to earn some money. But on the other hand, there's a balance in terms of how far people wish to push. Uh, the main change, obviously, is going to be the desire to carry on working from home. Uh, whilst we've been on lockdown, some people have challenged because there's been no social contact whatsoever. But as we move forward, we're, our, we're going to be opening our offices in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, we've probably limited the number of people uh, coming in. But I think we are going to move into what, what is a new norm for us, which is that probably 40 to 50% of our people on any day will be working from home, which mm. improves their work-life balance, uh, but obviously reduces our cost in terms of our physical footprint as well. Well, that actually leads us quite uh, well on to uh, this week's topic of the week question. Every week we have a topical question, which we feature. This week, uh, you actually uh, pit me to the post here, uh, and it is, what role do you think that the office will play in the future of work in general? And as you said, within your own organization, you're moving towards uh, 50-50 um, and the wider world. Yes, I, I, and I think it, it has quite significant implications uh, in the wider economy as well. But I think if we focus on, on Vic Rothenberg first, certainly for us, the role of the office is very much a place where, where people will come together. People still like working in teams. Teamwork is important for us. Uh, but also the social and well-being side is important. People like the social contact, like to catch up with their friends. Uh, for a lot of young people nowadays, the main friendships are through work, and therefore that's a good social hub for them as well. We clearly need to carry on training and mentoring our people as well. A lot of it can be done online, but there still is no substitute for sitting next to someone when you're trying to mentor uh, them as well. So mm. clearly it will play a part. But at the same time, it means that not everyone needs to be in the office. I think in terms of the impact for, for us, for our clients in the wider world, obviously concern, if I look at London where we are, if we are fairly typical in thinking that 40 or 50% of our people will be working from home at any one point in time, it means 
of a number of people who would be in London buying sandwiches, coffees, and everything else, and going to the theatre, etc. All of that is going to reduce and be compressed into a time when, when they're in the office. And of course, if that is replicated across the economy, there will be some quite challenges in terms of what happens to those sort of hospitality sectors, but also mm. what happens to property space in London as well. well. That's absolutely right. It's going to have a major hit on the commercial real estate market, isn't it? Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, and interesting in terms of how quickly we've uh, pivoted in terms of our business, which is being replicated right across London. We, because we've gone through a phase over the last three years of uh, having acquired four other accounting practices, we were in the process of looking to physically merge uh, all of our five offices into effectively what could have been two offices of about 27,000 square foot each. And we were looking to acquire another three floors of space, new new space, and giving up some of the older space. But now we've done our numbers and looking at where we think our business is going to head and the way our people want to work, we are not going to be taking those three floors mm-hmm. of space, which clearly means, that, uh, assuming that is replicated, maybe not in those numbers, generally across the London area, then those who are experts in this field are going to have to find new use for this space, really. Well, it certainly will be an interesting journey to see uh, where we end up. But we should move on to the subject of leadership. After all, that's why you're here in the first place. I always like to start this part of the conversation off by asking the same simple question. What does the word leader mean to you? Leader, uh, to to me, certainly um, means um, caring for our people. We are a people business at the end of the day. Uh, Being firm and clear in terms of our messaging and decision-making process as well. Uh, being clear, certainly to this period, that we may not get everything right, but being very open uh, and treating people as, as partners within our business as well. And giving a clear vision of where it is we want to go. And I think what I found helpful is certainly to this period is some positivity as well. Not false, but certainly I think people look for hope in terms of where it is they're going, and they look to the leader to be positive in terms of what's, what is what lies ahead for the business as well. And how would you describe your personal leadership style? I'd say, for me personally, it's uh, very much focused on our people. Uh, and I've said we are a people business at the end of the day, but for me, I take a very simple approach that if I look after our people, a lot of people look after our clients, and therefore I'm going to have a pretty sort of virtuous circle that's happy. If I purely focus on my clients and not on my people, then at some stage my clients may not be happy because our people are not providing the service that my clients, our clients need. So for me, it has been one of really putting our people agenda first, but at the same time in being very clear but also firm and also carrying on the message of being firm and disciplined in how we run the business and making sure everyone else feels that they have a stake in the business and therefore are also firm and disciplined in how we look after business and our clients as well. How would you say you came to this style of leadership? Did you have a role model who shaped you in this way or was this more of an organic development? Uh, It's both. uh, Many years ago, I had the senior partner of our practice when I was a mere junior partner was a gentleman by the name of Alfred Homburger, uh, and even before then, the founder of the firm, uh, Helmut Rothenberg, when I first uh, came as a senior manager within the practice. And the thing I found with both of them was the personal touch, the fact that they took time to come and say, 
if her job had been done well, but she just asked for the how things were. And I used to find as an individual that they used to spur me on in terms of feeling valued within the practice. So that that those two gentlemen were role models uh, for me. Uh, and I think as time has gone on, it, it's a commercial realization as much as a personal thing. I think as an individual, I like people. I can relate to people. I'm interested in people, and therefore it's a natural uh, thing for me to actually get to know people. But on the basis that it helps the business as well, obviously, then it works around that I might like to see people if it doesn't work for the business. Uh, then that becomes a very personal issue rather than a business issue. So for me, it's an evolution, uh, but as much a personal thing as a business need as well, because we do, we, we have, whilst the market has changed now, we have come through a number of years where the market is very tight for trying to find talented people. And once you find people, you really want to keep them. And the uh, drive for me and my team has been to try and make Flickr Rockenberg a place where people wish to work and want to come. So whenever somebody's looking for a job or moving jobs, then I would like to think that Flickr Rockenberg is somewhere where they would want to come and work. So it's, it's, uh, it's a personal agenda, but as, as much a business agenda as well. Now, unfortunately, our time together is drawing to its close. But before I let you go, what does the next 12 months have in store for Blick Rothenberg? Uh, we, we, have, we are beginning to come out of this fairly strong. Uh, our business has withstood uh, the last three months uh, fairly well. We are very open to the challenges that lie ahead. But the opportunities for firms like ours who are strong in the marketplace because there are clients still requiring good service. Uh, but... We're, we're not naive to think that the next 12 months is going to be easy. Uh, we've just come out of what I perceive as phase one. Uh, phase two, I think, is the beginning of probably a, a slight recession as, as the further scheme ends for many, many businesses out there. And I'd expect that as we go further in, uh, I predict that there will be slightly deeper recession, but not, not so bad that our business is going to suffer significantly. So for us, it's making sure we carry on being disciplined in how we run our business, but also stay positive that mm. we are still looking for reasonable growth over the next 12 months. Well, it's been a pleasure having you on the program today. I do hope that you can come back when things get back on much more of an even keel. But for now, Nilish, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. That was Nilish Shah, Chief Executive of Blick Rothenberg. And now, if you haven't heard it before, is Jonathan White's exclusive interview with Sir Andrew Strauss. Hello and welcome. I'm Jonathan White, and today we are joined by Sir Andrew Strauss, former captain of the England cricket team and former director of cricket at the ECB. Sir Andrew, thank you very much for joining us today. Real pleasure to be here. Thank you. The pleasure is all of ours. You know, Andrew, you've had a distinguished career, as I said, both on and off the pitch in English cricket, recognised not least with your knighthood for services to sport just last year. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Um, Now, there have been ups and downs in the career, like any career, including public and private disagreements with certain individuals. And on that front, I think what everybody wants to know, have you finally forgiven Marcus Dress-Cothic for giving you that stupid Lord Brockett nickname? (laughs) Um, Well, my recollection was that it wasn't Marcus Dress-Cothic who gave me that nickname. Ah. It was actually Mark Butcher. Uh, to blame. You know, I think there were a lot of people. It was the senior England teams at the mo- mm. at that time who wanted to sort of put me in my place and make sure that I didn't get above my station. So um, uh, thankfully, it didn't particularly <laughs> stick, other than within those group of players. And you really did try and get on their nerves by getting above your station, because of course, in your first outing, uh, 
you went on to score 112. Mm. Now, am I right in saying this, perhaps, that you only got there because Michael Vaughan did himself an injury? Well, that was the reason I got on the pitch in the yes. first place. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's often sort of misunderstood or misjudged the role that luck plays in, a, in an international career or sporting career, full stop. And, um, you know, I was wait, waiting patiently in the wings mm. for an opportunity and it didn't really seem like an opportunity was going to come along. And then you know, Warney got injured in the nets and there was my chance and I had to kind of grab it with both hands if I could. And you certainly did. What was it like then to uh, see your name being put up on the Lord's Honour Board after your first appearance? Yeah, look, I'd just been transported to a completely different world almost i'd been i was a middlesex player i was mm. captain of middlesex all my focus was on helping middlesex sort of win the championship and whatever and then a week later i've scored a test century which is something i'd always dreamed out you know, literally all my life and then the thought of doing it at lords in your first test match. i mean it was literally the dream so and then suddenly i started thinking wow hold on not potentially i've got a whole england career ahead of me and everything that entails so it was a real shock to the system. Um, but I suppose what I was grateful for was that I was rel relatively old, probably not the right way of putting it, but I was 27 of years course. of age. I was pretty comfortable with my own game. And I was also, I think, mature enough to understand um, that this was a great opportunity for me, but not to get carried away with it, which is unfortunately what happens with a lot of younger players. Without a doubt. And I think... In those early years of your career, it's so important, I think you'd agree, especially when you're learning from other more experienced people, and this can be true of any field, whether it's sports or politics or business, um, to have somebody there that you can rely on or look up to for guidance. In those early days, was there somebody that you could say to this day that, thank goodness they were there for you? Uh, well, I think in preparing me for international cricket, Justin Langer was a massive mm. um source of advice for me so he was captain of Millsets you know, a couple of years beforehand and really helped me understand what I needed to do to get there um, but then I think on the day-to-day -day basis my wife Ruth played a, a huge mm. role you know just in terms of because I, I think there is that real danger that you get carried away with it and you think yes. international sport in that goldfish bowl that you know you're more important than you, you were previously or that that whole world is the real world and uh, and obviously all we know is that the real world nothing's changed other than mm -hmm. other people's perception of you and you need that grounding and again that can be true of any uh, so many different areas of life i think so yeah I, I mean very easy to get caught up in it and end up doing different things being with different people sort of trying to enjoy everything that goes with international cricket rather than focusing on the actual international it's cricket. And itself. in those early days, Andrew, there were lots of examples where you could have got carried away because that team accomplished so much. Um, I think for a lot of people, the 2005 Ashes series is one of the greatest sporting moments of this country's history. Now, we could chat for hours about that, but I know uh, I wouldn't be allowed to, and, and, and you've got <laughs> other places to be, so <laughs> we can't do that, but... I, if I may, I would love to ask what your highlight was personally for that, but perhaps more importantly, um, as a team, how were you able as a group to deal with the pressure no doubt you were feeling? Yeah, well, the, the pressure is like nothing else that I experienced before or after because, you know, I think it's 
easy to forget how how much of a holy grail the Ashes was mm. back then. You know, we hadn't won it for so long, and it seemed like we'd come up against these invincible Australian teams year after year. So, you know, the, the closer we got to it, the harder it became. Um, I remember Ashley Giles walking into the dressing room. For the f- I think it was in the final day of the series, and I looked at him, and he looked absolutely terrible, <laughs> like just white of a sheet, grey. He looked like aged about five years. I went, God, Charlie, you're not looking too good. And he went, yeah, it's not surprising. I haven't slept for eight weeks. <laughs> and I went, well, join the club. You right. know, and I think we'd all been sort of living this behind our own closed doors. And um, yeah, it, it's just an extraordinary thing. And uh, without doubt, the the highlight was, number one, drawing that game at the Oval yes. to make sure we, we, we won the Ashes. But also the day after, you know, that open top bus parade around London and to understand that we'd broken out of the cricket bubble that they're just general sports fans or just people that were interested in in seeing England win at something were all engaged and uh, completely besotted by the whole thing I think that's such a key point you know, because there's there's so there were so many people back in 2005 that may have not even given cricket a second glance and it put a whole new generation especially of children and school kids into loving that sport and so beyond the actual competition itself what a fantastic thing to be able to say was accomplished for, for absolutely uh, everything you say there is absolutely right like we, we just sort of opened the doors of cricket to a whole new generation but probably more importantly it was the one and only time in my life that i got papped outside a nightclub that <laughs> night when we were celebrating you know i felt like i'd really arrived well as a done. celebrity yes. <laughs> it only happened for that one night unfortunately but I, I did ask for a highlight, and if you didn't perhaps give a specific one on the pitch, uh, uh, so I would suggest perhaps that catch at Trent Bridge. No, no, <laughs> no. I mean, the, the catch at Trent Bridge was, uh, you know, you see a ball, you stick out your hand, and it goes in. I, I think um, my personal highlight was I scored a hundred in that fifth Test yes. match under real pressure, and that that was one that, you know, that that wasn't a moment. That was a, a number of hours, and I had to dig pretty deep to do that. Now. Obviously, not that long later, uh, and you were lucky enough and privileged, I'm sure, no doubt, to serve as captain. And whether you like it or not, you become the focal point of criticism. Uh, you looked on, up to and relied upon to be strong, especially when the going gets tough. You become a leader in many senses of the word. Uh, during your time as captain, what qualities does one require to fulfil that role? Ha. Um... Well, a fair amount of resilience for starters. Mm. You know, you're absolutely right. You, you know, I, I remember when I, I got the role, it, it did feel like the biggest sort of poison chalice of all time, and that you know, <laughs> yes. sort of a litany of England captains had sort of been churned up by the job prior to me taking over. So th- there was that sort of realization: this is going to be a tough thing to do, um, and you're going to have to dig pretty deep. But I think actually, the most important thing was sort of just pushing all that noise to one side and just clarifying, okay, if I'm going to do this job, what is it that we really want to achieve out of this? Mm. And so you, th- suddenly that becomes a bit more exciting and a bit more enticing, the idea of, well, we can do something that's never been done before here and I've got the opportunity to to play my part in that. So, um, you know, I think that, w- that was a big part of it for me. Um, you know, I think a lot of those qualities around leadership I don't think you know you have them until you're in that situation. It's very hard to prepare yourself properly for those situations. Um, And when managing 
team, uh, you're required to manage, of course, what some people could call big personalities. Others could use different shorter words. <laughs> How poisonous can it be, players, when players, and indeed, and this applies again to so many different areas of life, when individuals um, think they are perhaps more important than, than a team? Well, I, I think probably worth broadening out that a bit. It you lets. know, I, I think there there are all sorts of different people that you have to um, sort of contend with in a team environment, and uh, the job of a, the leadership or the management is to tr to try and sort of gel them all together and get them bought into what you're trying to do and whatever. So, you know, th there are some people that are a bit more self-absorbed. There's some people that are slightly more maverick in the, the way they, they view the world. Um, there's some people that are very quiet. Uh, there's some people that are, you know, perhaps very worried about what might go wrong. And so you've got to try and mm. understand all these people individually and try and get the best out of them. Um, but, th th yeah, there was definitely a line there for me in terms of um, embracing difference up to the point where someone doing following their agenda was going in the completely different path from the team's agenda. And, you know, if and when that happens, that, that should be a problem for a leadership. And if it isn't a problem, then you're not doing your but job. Absolutely. Um, and with all that in mind, actually, uh, and perhaps this is a bit of a mean question, but what advice would you give to others in a similar position, leading a team, um, being looked up to? What would be the key advice you'd give to them? And that you couldn't really do without it. Just generally about leading I, I a team. I think so. Yes. Okay. Uh, number one thing about leadership, I'm absolutely certain about this, is that the people you're leading need to know that you care about them. Mm. And if if they genuinely believe you've got their best interests at heart, they will forgive all sorts of other inadequacies you might have. And I've definitely had many, um, because. They, they'll know your heart's in the right place and they, uh, they'll they feel comforted. There'll be a degree of sort of psychological safety or some, or whatever it might you might term to, to make sure that the, the team comes together when the going gets tough. If they genuinely don't believe you care about them and you're in it for yourself, it um, doesn't matter how charismatic you might be. It doesn't matter, you know, how gregarious and, and how... Um, impressive you might be as a person they will be wary of you mm. and they will start looking after their own interests very quickly um now in 2015 obviously you were appointed as director of the ecb uh you took some pretty uh major steps early on um you brought in trevor bayliss as coach was what was brought in um you put a much greater emphasis on limited overs cricket now in the abstract what had you identified that needed to be changed um, for English cricket? And were there qualities that you had developed, you'd found out you had as England captain that you were able to bring over the job? Um, okay, so the first thing was we had this unbelievable opportunity of the World Cup on Hollywood Soil in yes. 2019. Uh, I was, firstly, I was sick and tired of watching us make the same mistakes in World Cups, and this includes my time as captain. We just kept on sleepwalking our way into it and pretending everything would be on the all right mm. on the night, and it never was. Um, and so I definitely made it our priority to win that 2019 World Cup. I thought that was more important than anything else that was going to be taking place in my tenure. Um, and I knew in order to do that, we had to com 
completely shift our perception of white ball cricket. Quite a radical shift from what we, we, what we were coming from. Yeah, but mm. the rest of the game had moved on. And yeah. the rest of the game had understood that white ball cricket was playing an increasingly important role in, in both financially, but also in in terms of players' focus and interest. Yes. Um, and we had to move... With, in fact, we didn't have to move at times. We need to get ahead of the time. <laughs> so, you know, we had to completely shift out both our philosophy, but also the way we played in order to do that. Um, and I was very lucky uh, having both Trevor Bayliss and Owen Morgan who were prepared to sort of role model that and lead that through. Um, and the second part of your question around what have the England captaincy sort of done to prepare me for the role? I, I think I was comfortable leading. I was I knew mm. the environment. I knew what I was getting myself into. And, and in the early days, I could leverage some of the relationships that I had with the players. But actually, I found it a very different challenge because you are so so far removed from what's going on on the ground right. and so you know you're relying on other people to have to you know buy into what you want to happen and then do it themselves mm. and often you know in different time zones in different parts of the world so that was that was a very new experience for me well i think the strategy paid off and uh, i don't know even when watching that world cup final again as so many people did in this country it's once again it inspired another generation of uh, especially school kids who, again, might not have given cricket a second look, who have now become avid cricket fans. I know of some, it, and it, what, what a wonderful thing that must be. Yeah, it was an incredible day, wasn't it? I mean, I think in our vision, like when we're talking about the opportunity of winning the 2019 World Cup, I had this vision in my mind of Lords on a sunny day and a close finish and the incredible kind of, you know, emotion that went with it. Mm. No one could have dreamt. No, how it played out. I've never seen anything. I've never seen a game of cricket like that in my whole life, and for it to be the World Cup final was quite extraordinary. I know some fantastically avid cricket fans who were googling there and then what exactly the rules became because I yeah, well, so was, <laughs> was I actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, now, Andrew, in your in your wife's memory, you established the Ruth Strauss Foundation last year. Uh, in doing so, whether you'd admit it or not, yourself and the foundation has become. An inspiration to thousands, husbands and wives, mothers and fathers, sons and daughters. Please do take some time, if you wouldn't mind, and you to explain to the listeners the work the foundation does and, and what it's been like to lead a project like that. Yeah, thanks. Um, well, look, I mean, we obviously had a very tough journey as a family. First of all, Ruth being diagnosed, Ruth was someone that was always well. You never think she was going to be someone that was sort of laid down by cancer. And for us to find out that she had lung cancer was mm. extraordinary. She'd never smoked a, a cigarette in her life. And I think we all had this perception of lung cancer being a smoker's disease. Um, and so just uh, having gone through the experience and obviously some very low times and us coming to terms with the fact that, that Ruth had stage four cancer and she was going to die, um, we learned a lot in that process. And, and thankfully we had time for me to speak to Ruth before she died about legacy and what we could do to make something positive come out of you know this experience we'd all been through and so after she died in December uh, 2018 uh, I came back and launched a foundation with two focuses number one to fund research into these rare forms of lung cancer these mm. are the non-smoking lung cancers um, five to seven thousand people each year in this country are diagnosed with these no one knows why they're getting them, um, but they're on the increase, and it's women 
young women that are affected more than men. Extraordinary so, numbers. Yeah, I mean, it, in the list of top 10 cancers, it's number eight. Rare forms right. of lung cancer, number eight. So it's not really rare, it's probably a misnomer, but it's, um, yeah, we're really lacking in funding and understanding. And then the second element, and probably this is in some ways more pressing, is um, to help uh, cancer, anyone who's got cancer who has an incurable uh, diagnosis, to help them and their families prepare themselves for death. Mm. And so in order to do that, we need to be able to find ways of them having open conversations with each other because if you do this well, it should help the bereavement afterwards if you're well prepared for it. It's not something people like to do. I was very lucky that Ruth wanted to do it. Um, but also we have to have that debate about about the taboo of death and yes. you know, effectively how uncomfortable we are talking about it and certainly how bad we are preparing for it. If you, if it, you think for a moment about antenatal casters before you have your mm. baby like how we're preparing you for the how your life's going to change and we do nothing around death even though we're all going to experience it in one shape way shape or form and um you know we i think as a society we need to be better than that we, we've come a long way in so many different areas and especially around mental health and we can do better about death there's no doubt about it well i think it's the, it, the foundation is leading the way in breaking taboos on that front because they need to be broken um uh, I know they've got the foundation is going at some events later this year. So if you could tell us about some of those, that would be yeah. So the uh, I mean, we've got a couple of big ones coming up. So uh, the Westminster Mile, which is a, a very inclusive. If you're thinking about think about a marathon, but just think about just doing a mile of a marathon <laughs> rather than 26. Sounds ideal. So we've got grandparents, we've got little kids, we've got people pushing prams, so that we're going to get as many people as possible to play their part in that and raise some funds. Um, we've got the Red for Ruth Day at Lords again, so that was an incredible day for us it last year. You could, you, whether you were there or not, especially if you were there, I mean to say, but whether it was the photos in the papers the next day, what an extraordinary! I think it was the fifteenth of April, wasn't it? What an extraordinary day, and what an overwhelming day that must have been for you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, an Ashes Test match is a big day anyway, yes. and then f for us to have that extra element of the the Red for Ruth Day and to see the the wave of support you know it's probably it was just i myself and the boys were incredibly profoundly affected by that uh, in a good way you know we felt so much uh, love and support there and then the foundation is directly benefited hugely by the the funds raised and um we want to take it up a gear this year and, and make it more of a community thing not just the the day at lords um i even saw some of the stuffiest members of the mcc andrew wearing red uh, wearing red so what what an extraordinary thing yeah well a lot um, of them <laughs> wear red trousers <laughs> anyway no, i think but um <laughs> no it, absolutely you know they, they were right behind us and um you know we, we really want that to be something that's embedded in in the english summer uh, just like the mcgrath foundation days yes. in, in sydney and australia well it's been a complete inspiration um and uh, i very much hope we can talk about that perhaps late in a few months as well absolutely. um before we go, as I'm conscious of the time, we uh, it's also an exciting year for domestic cricket, um, not least uh, because of the introduction of the 100, not without its critics, though I should. And I know you're uh, a big proponent of it. Um, the Blast has clearly shown um, that the short form of the game has brought cricket to a new and growing audience, exciting games. Uh, what do you say to those that ask, why do we need the 100 as well? Uh, well... So the 100 is the most important uh, step forward in domestic cricket in this country ever. 
And the reason for that is that increasingly, well, there's two things. First of all, we need to break out of the cricket bubble. So the blast followers tend to be the same people that follow other cricket. Right. And therefore, you know, that's a small audience, mm-hmm. and potentially a, a declining one over time, even though the blast sales are increasing. Uh, we need to break out of that and try and get g- more general sports fans into cricket. Um, but more importantly, um, just the, the way the tournament's set up and it's one day, one game a day over a six-week period, broadcasters will pay money for that. And therefore, what we're trying to do is re- reduce our reliance on international cricket paying all the bills. If you think about test cricket and some of the issues around the world, we just can't rely on that money coming in mm. to fund the game. So we need to find another way of doing that. Um, I just think it's going to be an incredible success. I'm so excited about it. I know there are people that are worried about it, but in two or three years' time, um, you know, we're going to have our own uh, short-form tournament that will rival the Big Bash and will be moving towards the IPL. And those are you know, those are two enormous events out there, and we can have our own version of that ourselves. I can feel your enthusiasm for it. As a as an Essex fan, I, I'm still stumped as to... I think I'm going to have to choose between either supporting a team based at the Oval or a team based at Lords. I, I'll, I'll get over that, but I'll, I'll yeah, have to do well it. Well, surely it's got to be the Lords one, right? That sh- sh- of course. Yeah. <laughs> um, Sanjay, it's been an absolute pleasure discussing that and everything else with you today. Thank you very much. Cheers. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence and leadership with us. I have been your host, Matthew O'Neill. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, other guests, or any other person therein associated.